You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash milkstreet 
to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Lynchburg, Tennessee knew the story of Nearest Green, the former slave who taught Jack Daniels how to make whiskey. But Fawn Weaver dug deep and reported the true story to the whole world. There are so many African Americans who helped to start industries, that helped to invent things, that helped to perfect things, and we will never know their names. And so for the very few whose names we do know, to have the ability and the opportunity to honor them is is huge. Before we hear from Fawn Weaver, I chat with journalist Wyatt Williams, who retraced John McPhee's expedition to Florida's orange groves and found an industry in rapid decline. Wyatt, how are you? I'm doing great today. How are you, Chris? Good. Uh, let's set the scene. It's 1965. It's at the uh, office of William Sean, the editor of The New Yorker, for many, many years. Uh, and John McPhee is sitting in the office wondering about his next story and uh, what happens next. Well, as the story goes, he's just recently finished a very long profile of a young basketball player. And he is trying to figure out what he's going to write for the magazine next. He's just been hired on as a staff writer. And they're going through idea after idea. And McPhee would suggest a story. And Sean would say, no, that that idea is reserved for another writer. Or he'd suggest another idea and he'd say, no, no, that isn't quite right. That isn't quite interesting. And at some point, in a kind of frustration, McPhee simply said, oranges. And and Sean said, yes. Yes, yes. I I think the quote is exactly, at least according to McPhee, oh, yes, oh, yes, that's very good. And then McPhee says the next thing he knew, he was down in Florida interviewing orange growers. So two years later, uh, the book Oranges is published. Mm -hmm. Why don't you just describe what the concept was and then how you decided to do a follow-up piece about it? The first few pages of it are a a prose poem, really. They're just a description of different ways that people eat oranges, shifting across the globe, sentence to sentence. The day is started with orange juice in the Colombian Andes and to some extent in Kuwait. Bolivians don't touch it at breakfast time, but they drink it steadily for the rest of the day. This goes on for pages. But really, the heart of it, the book, comes down to a road trip into Florida to visit with orange growers to understand the enormous complexity that goes into making or growing such a a, a simple fruit. I say make because we have made it. We've made it so different from what it was originally in many different techniques of agriculture. And because of this, it's sort of become entwined in a certain kind of human history. And it's a very short book. It, It is under 150 pages, and yet it seems to give us a full view of the way that oranges have intersected with humans in in that time, in the time that we've been growing them, which is fascinating and beautiful and, and, and brings us to the present day with McPhee where the industry is changing. It's shifting to putting oranges into concentrate for juice, which is redefining the industry at the time that he's writing the book. 
So let, let, let's start with some orange facts. Uh, oh, sure. And I, I found this, your piece fascinating. The orange is green, not orange. Uh, <laughs> yes. And it changes its color when exposed to cool air. So in some places in the world where oranges are grown, they're never actually orange, right? Correct, correct. It has to get to a, a different temperature to take on its namesake color. And so there are there are absolutely trees that are green leaves, green fruit, and, and never become oranges. The oranges are never orange. And then you say that if the temperature drops below 28 degrees for longer than four hours, the inside becomes icy, but the outside shows no damage. And that's why it's you know, when it gets cold in Florida, there's a big problem. It is. And, you know, I mean, for good reason, they're grown around the tropics in places that freezes don't typically happen. But yes, of course, I think one of the most dramatic moments over the history of time for orange growers, especially in Florida, are these sort of deep freezes. They've developed a lot of techniques over the years to prevent them. One technique in the early 20th century was a uh, process where basically they would light diesel fires and tanks right. that would spread soot all over the um, groves and and bring some degree of heat. Um, we don't do that anymore because it causes such pollution. John McPhee, he's fascinated by the topic, and he goes into enormous detail. That's his style. And, and you have a great quote, by the way. I, I just love your quote about uh, this book, among others. You say, quote, most writers I know hate the books they love. <laughs> Could you? I mean, that was a great sentence. What, what does that mean? Well, I think a lot of my admiration and many other writers that admire McPhee admire him because he's doing something almost intentionally difficult, right? He's looking at boring subjects or things that we, we would think don't typically have drama, and he finds the drama and, and the interest in them. You know, for me, that sort of hating the book that you love comes from a certain extent of trying to be a writer and trying to accomplish these difficult writerly tasks and and seeing someone who has done it so much better than you can ever hope to do. <laughs> and so your admiration turns to a kind of resentment or, or envy. You hear that, I guess, a little bit from writers about envy. So so you go back down there to, to central Florida and you stop at a welcome center expecting, of course, to find orange juice the orange juice was two stops later in a vending machine, so that wasn't very encouraging. But I gather that the orange industry is in some dire straits these days. Yeah, you know, and if you don't mind, maybe I'll dial back for you here a little bit so I can explain how all this came about, okay. me understanding it. Um, you know, like I said, I, I went into this situation from a point of, of trying to follow up on a book, and I was vaguely familiar with some of the troubles that, that the industry had been having, but I, I did not understand the extent to which they are deeply affecting the industry there. There's a disease that's known as greening that cripples orange trees and it lowers production numbers to the point that eventually kills the tree. And it has infected essentially 100% of the groves in Florida at this point. Now, you, you wrote that in 2010, mm -hmm. the industry produced 250 million boxes, and in 2016, it was down to 70 million. Correct. Th th that sounds – that's a bell curve <laughs> you don't really want to be on because you're almost at the end of the curve, right? No one in the industry has any comparable 
experience with something like this. Diseases have been trouble for the orange industry in Florida, you know, for over the 100 years that they've they've been growing them there. But nothing is comparable to the degree at which this has affected the industry. So let's just talk about the processing part of it. Uh, my mm-hmm. understanding is that, you know, orange juice is not orange juice. They take uh, bits of the peel and other parts of the orange and they have flavor components. And so they freeze the orange juice and then reconstitute it adding back flavor. Is that correct? Now, the people in the industry will be very serious to tell you that they don't put anything in the orange juice that's not in the orange. Right. Right? They're, they're very specific of all the things that they're adding back in were already part of the fruit. But yes, the thing that we drink out of the carton has been calibrated to suit our tastes, right? We know this simply by just if you take a regular orange and cut it in half and squeeze it over your glass, it tastes very little like the thing that you get out of the carton, right? And, you know, this comes down to simple, I hate to say it, but the industrialization of our tastes. We like a certain amount of acid, a certain amount of sugar, and to achieve that, they've developed some, frankly, incredible and and very powerful technology, but it has also erased some of the uh, uniqueness of drinking the juice from a specific orange. So the obvious question is, in the world of Twitter and social media, Mm -hmm. what you do and John McPhee does Mm -hmm. is the antithesis of that, which is (laughs) you, you dive as deeply and slowly as possible for as long as possible to get at something that's hard to get at. You can only get at by by deep mining, and yet the rest of the world just wants to you know skip over the surface. Is there is is the time for that going to come back? Do you desperately feel that we're missing out on life and culture because we're not diving deep? You know, I've got a Twitter account. I look at it more than I'd like to. I think our appetites are changed by it. I think our attention spans are changed by it. You know, do I think? both the deep dive and the superficial quip, can they exist in the same world? I kind of think they can. I don't think there's going to be any point in human history where there isn't going to be an appetite for a story that truly understands its subject. There is a human desire for understanding and for storytelling in a way that's actually what drew me to writing about oranges. One of the things this book demonstrates so well is the way that we need to understand even the most simple things around us. You know, part of the point of the way he approaches it is that it's not just in the science of agriculture. It's not just in the poetry written about oranges. It's not just in the meals that we make out of it. It's the synthesis of all of those things that really comes together to to make culture. And I think that's not going away. Here's another quote from your article. I I went to Florida in January so I could stop reading oranges so that I could see the trees for myself and move on. We all have to learn to grab for the fruit we can reach. Um, Did you move on? I I really like to turn in stories finished mostly to an editor, right? You want it to be clean. And even once the editor gets it, of course, they'll change it and they'll add things and they'll delete things and it'll become something new. But I like that first pass for them to read to feel really complete. And for whatever reason, I had a really hard time turning this thing in, in part maybe because I was writing about a writer that was better than myself, in part because I was dealing with, you know, several different aspects of a complicated story. And 
I have this terrible habit as a writer that I, I keep a, a messy desk while I'm, I'm working on a story. I won't clean it. I keep all my papers and research and they sort of just stack up and stack up. But you also have like the empty paper coffee cup and, you know, the wrapper from the, you know, bacon, egg and cheese sandwich that you're eating. <laughs> and it was just piling up and piling up. And I was just sitting there and it's like, I'm going crazy. I can smell like orange rot you know the specific smell of a moldy orange like mm -hmm. there's nothing like it in the world and i thought this is it wyatt you've completely lost it <laughs> dealing with this book and i turned in the story and we finished final copy edits and then i finally cleaned off my desk and got everything there and there had been a orange rotting underneath all of my papers the whole time <laughs> i had been writing it <laughs> so it wasn't a philosophical rotting orange it was in fact a rotting orange <laughs> it really yeah. was just a real orange rotting on my desk Wyatt, it's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. After Oranges, a follow-up on John McPhee's book, Oranges. Uh, a deep dive, well-written, and definitely worth spending time on. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. That was reporter Wyatt Williams. You can subscribe and listen to Mill Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. Just subscribe and get all of our shows downloaded right to your phone. Now it's time to take some of your calls, and it's time for Sarah and I to argue about the answers. Sarah, are you ready? I am ready to do <laughs> battle, Chris. Welcome to Milster Radio. Who's calling? Hi, this is Matthew from Richmond, Virginia. Hi, Matthew. How Hi, are you? Hi, Matthew. How can we help you? So my question is about cooking oil, and in particular, avocado oil. I live in an apartment without the best ventilation. Oh, so do I. Yes, I yes. hate that. When I cook, especially when I'm searing meats, there's a lot of smoke, and I tend to stink up our place for at least a day. Oh, dear. And I was looking to switching to avocado oil since I've read it has a higher smoke point, and I'm hoping that would mean I create less smoke. Can I ask you two questions? What oil are you using now, and what are you cooking? So usually it's peanut or vegetable oil, and when I'm creating the most smoke, it tends to be when I'm like browning meats. Yeah, but it's not just the oil that's smoking. It's also, I mean, when you're browning the meat, you're going to get some smoke from the meat itself. And, and the also, reaction. Right. And also from the saturated right. fat, right. which has a low smoke point. The fat on the meat has is saturated fat, and right. that will smoke. I don't know if your problem is really peanut versus avocado. I think it's probably more that perhaps you're cooking over too high a heat. Yeah. What kind of stove do you have, and what kind of pan are you using? Let's start with that. So we have gas. Stove, and I'm either using a uh, stainless steel or I'm using a cast iron. You might try heating the cast iron for quite a long time over sort of low to medium heat to get it nice and hot, but slowly. And then probably not keep it on high. Keep it on medium to medium low. You will get to the same point eventually. You don't need to do it quickly. So I would try using a little bit less heat. That's what okay. I would do. Avocado oil, I just ordered some, so I will test out the smoke point. Peanut oil has a pretty high smoke point, too. Peanut oil does, too. Yeah. And actually, if you preheat the pan the way Chris right. just described, you could almost brown something really nicely over medium heat right. without creating quite as much smoke. I mean, technically, your oil should never smoke because if it's smoking, it's getting to its flash point, and it means that it's beginning to denature. So you want to try to avoid that. And the other problem with avocado oil, it's expensive. It is expensive. So that's... Uh, I have noticed that. 
But I think really the problem is reduce the heat. Yeah. Preheat the pan the way Chris Slowly. said. Slowly. so it's nice and hot, and then reduce it. And you know what I generally say, if it starts to smoke, get it off the burner. Guys, one last question. What's the brand sure. of your stainless steel skillet? Gosh, I don't even know, Chris. It's so old. My guess is the cast iron skillet is a better way to go. It'll retain heat more evenly, and you can control the heat. But in a lower quality stainless steel pan, unless it's like an all clad or something, you can end up with hot spots, and that will cause that a could, lot of smoke. Yeah, that could too. Yeah, so yeah. That, I, I would stick with okay. a cast iron. Right. Okay. There well, you go. That's all, all we know on that topic, I <laughs> okay, think. Thanks, so, Matthew. Thanks for calling. Thanks for calling, man. Thanks. Y'all have a good one. Yeah. Yes. Take care. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking failure or complaint, or if you just want to try to stump us, give us a ring anytime. That number is 855-426-9843. 855-426-9843. Or send us an email. We'd love to hear from you at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? This is Mary Mitchell from Bemidji, Minnesota. Hi, Mary. How are you, and how can we help you? I'm well, thank you. I have a question about cleaning eggs. You had a gentleman on the show, uh, I heard it uh, probably about a month and a half ago, and he talked about washing eggs. Well, I get farm eggs, and they often have, you know, soil, they're soiled. And I'm wondering, I had heard that you should just wipe them clean because water can drive the bacteria into the porous eggshell and contaminate the egg inside. So I'd always heard that you should wipe the eggs clean rather than wash them. So I wanted to know um, if you know some more about that. That's a good question, because I often cook with uh, eggs either we used to raise or locally. And you're right, they're not clean on the outside. Oh, I, I think if you go to the supermarket, they're professionally clean. They are professionally they clean. They send them to the dry cleaners. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they have the egg, egg dry cleaners. So you don't have to worry about those. Uh, a friend of mine drops off half a dozen eggs once a week. And I have thought about that. I, I just use hot, soapy water, but you have a good question about whether that would... I've never heard of that. I think hot, soapy water would be fine. But don't eggs have like 16,000 holes in them or something? Well, They're the, porous. The whole thing I know about is, so when eggs are harvested, you know, taken out from under the chicken, they uh-huh. have a natural oily coating. And ah. uh, yeah, which keeps the egg fresher, actually. But for commercial purposes, it's rinsed, oh. it's cleaned. I don't know how they clean it, but it is cleaned. So that patina, that outside oh. is lost. So the egg deteriorates faster than a fresh egg. Really? You know, directly from the hen. Oh, but, that's but, interesting. But you are right. There is that detritus on the outside, some of which, frankly, is probably poop. Maybe use a very, very tiny bit of bleach, like a tablespoon to... A gallon of water. Yeah, very hot water. And I think you would be okay. Well, this is interesting. So you saying nature is better than... <laughs> nature in terms of keeping it fresh, not in terms of keeping it clean. Let's follow the logic. So if it comes out of the hen with a coating on it, and then on the outside it gets dirty, then why couldn't you just use hot soapy water? Because it has a, a seal the around the outside I, of the egg. See, I think hot soapy water is just fine. That's what I would do. Yeah. I agree with Chris, with the operative being hot. Because, yeah. you know, when they clean the eggs commercially... They're not forcing the bacteria back in. They're getting it off. Yeah. Right, right. That's interesting. Okay, well, good to know. That was really interesting to learn about the coating. Yeah. I love it when someone asks a question that I can't answer and you can. Now I learned something. (laughs) I'm listening to my own show now. Well, I used to have lunch with the American Egg Board year after year after year after year because I absolutely adore eggs. Did they serve eggs? Of course. (laughs) 
Oh, we <laughs> had many wondered. egg courses, yes. But anyway, I learned all these random things. That's not random. That's useful. No, it's very useful. Yeah. Sarah, nice yeah. job. Well, thank you for calling. Yes, Mary, well, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you yeah. for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Fawn Weaver. I'll be speaking to her about Nearest Green, a former slave who taught Jack Daniels how to make whiskey. After the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook I often cook with it so if I'm creating some kind of stew I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash obviously (laughs) and I think because of that Allagash White is 
kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. In 2016, Jack Daniels made headlines when it decided to embrace its secret history. The world-renowned distillery was created in part by a master distiller, Nearest Green, who was a former slave. This week, I chat with Fawn Weaver, a reporter and author who helped publicize Jack Daniels' true origin story. Fawn, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. Uh, Before we get to the story of Nearest Green, what were distilleries like pre-Civil War? Were these small regional operations, or did people have larger distilleries that distributed, let's say, throughout the state or beyond? They have larger distilleries. And so at uh, Mount Vernon, which was George Washington's distillery, he was putting out an enormous amount of whiskey, something like 88,000 gallons a year. I mean, it was a big number. And he had two white Scotsmen who oversaw eight slaves, and the slaves did the work. And Mm. so that is something you see very common in the distillery business, specifically in whiskey. I know Andrew Jackson, there is this ad that he placed all over Tennessee. And the ad essentially says, I have a runaway slave. He is my best slave. He is my distiller. And so all of these distilleries were essentially being worked by slaves, but because they were not considered uh, humans, if you will, because they weren't considered citizens, they were just property. We do not know the names of the majority of them. So who was Nearest Green? Where was he born? And how did he get the skill set to be a distiller? Nearest Green was born into slavery around 1820 in Maryland. And then he ends up in Lynchburg, Tennessee in the mid-1850s. So he ends up being the guy who trains Jack Daniels in the Jack Daniels distillery. But did things then work out for him? In other words, after the Civil War... He has this amazing skill set. Did, did, did he ended up making money out of that? Was he poor? Was he forgotten? What happened? After the Civil War, he was paid very well. He was paid so well that he was the wealthiest African-American in that area. And when you look at Nearest's personal wealth compared to a lot of the whites in the area, it was greater. And so we know that his skill set allowed him to be highly compensated. His children did incredibly well, as did his grandchildren. So you got onto the story. You go to Lynchburg. You interview people. And you said that people in Lynchburg knew the story, of course. It was not a secret there. And then you went to the Jack Daniels distillery. Yes. 
And it was really interesting to me because in Jack's office at that time, there was a the picture, the famous picture of Neris's son sitting next to Jack Daniel. And the tour guide in front of her, to the right of her, there are about four other pictures in that room. And she goes around the room one by one and shares who's in each picture and what the significance is of the picture. Until she gets to that photograph. (laughs) Until she gets to that photograph. And then I'm thinking, all right, here's the big moment. She waited until last. And she turned around and walked through the door and said, okay, follow me to this next room. And I and I sat there scratching my head, and my husband was with me, and I looked at him, and I was like, what in the world just happened? And uh, all in all, I, I went back between my husband and myself. We went back uh, six times, and Nearest was never mentioned. So how did they go from not mentioning Nearest to making him an important part of the history of the distillery? Well, I was in the middle of doing research and traveled to six different states and pulled records from each one. I interviewed Nearest's family in five different states and spent an enormous amount of time with them, an enormous amount of time with the community, and began piecing the story together. And then we purchased the Dan Call Farm, which is about 313 acres. It is where the original Jack Daniel distillery was until 1881, and it is also where Nearest Jack, and it's also where Nearest live and where Jack lived. So you didn't even bring your work home. You brought your home to work. You bought the house. <laughs> Man, you, you are I dedicated. Did. <laughs> I did. And, and inside of that home is my research room. And so mm. I began bringing artifacts one by one back, and the room just started filling up. And once the room began filling up, then word spread really quickly around town. And and so I had neighbors coming and people coming that would come into town that had heard the story. And and so after a while, I want to say at some point around February, January, February, I reached out to the distillery because I heard they had two items in their archives that I had not come across yet, and I was hoping they would share it. And uh, after they responded, they said, well, we want to get a better idea of what it is that you are doing, and, and so will you meet with our historian? So fast forward, their historian came down to the farm, and I went through everything with him. And within a day or two of him leaving, I got a call on my cell phone from the president of Jack Daniel. Hmm and said, I'd like to come down and and uh, and speak to you. And so he did. He came down the very next day, and uh, immediately they began making changes and said, we are going to update our, our history, and we are going to correct it. We're going to make it right. And so they did, quite quickly, quite quickly. That's a rare experience in the history Very of rare. American corporate I culture. A, I yes, yes, I... <laughs> I do. I give them so much credit because they understood that they had a brand that was built on being authentic and built on a story. And if there was an element of their story that was incorrect, it was important that they update it so that the authenticity of their story remained. So Uncle Nearest Bourbon, that's not being made by Jack Daniels, which is kind of surprising because you think that given Nearest Green's connection to the Jack Daniel Distillery. 
Right. Well, you know, when we first met and we began doing these projects, it did not start off with a whiskey. Originally, when I began working on this, it was looking at it from a historical standpoint as a book, as a movie. And then we also looked at it as doing uh, a library, a nearest green whiskey library. And so that was the original thought process. Making a whiskey <laughs> was not was not uh, was not a part of that thought process. But as I was doing interviews and as I was spending more time with Nearest's family and learning what it was that was important to them, it was to ensure that Nearest's legacy was never forgotten and to make sure that that happened by having a whiskey that lived beyond us. And it's been incredible to watch folks rally around this brand and and as we've uncovered more about the story and this amazing relationship between Nearest and and Jack it would have been very difficult for us for me in particular to be out sharing this really positive story that involved a slave and a white man who was taught by the slave but then was not credited it would be difficult for a person to then say but that relationship was great. But Nearest was well paid. But Nearest really enjoyed what he did. But Nearest's kids were really well taken care of and loved working for Jack and with Jack. And, and to describe the truth of what happened, it'd been very difficult for me to do that if Brown Foreman or Jack Daniel were actually a part of this brand. Right. It would not have felt authentic. And, and I get asked by the press quite a bit, are they backing you? on this. Is that why this story is positive? And I say, no, I get nothing from them. We are not in negotiations to do anything with them. And uh, and this story is just true and it's authentic. So after doing all this research, which was an amazing project, the, you now have come to the conclusion, I would assume, that a lot of industries in America, pre and post-Civil War, there were major contributions by African-Americans that nobody's ever heard of, Right. Oh, absolutely. The thing that's so unique about the story of Nearest and why I love talking about it and and I can talk about it every single day and never get bored is because there are so many African-Americans who helped to start industries, that helped to invent things, that helped to perfect things and create things, and we will never know their names. And so for the very few whose names we do know, to have the ability and the opportunity to honor them is, is huge for all of us as Americans, and no matter what our, our color is. It's a great story. Fawn, thank you so much. Are you still living on that farm, by the way? We are restoring the farm, but we do live within five minutes of it. <laughs> In a secret location, not to be revealed. No, no, no. <laughs> it's a small town. We're not hard to find. Well, good for you. I mean, you did a great job, great research. You turned this into a foundation, and uh, it's a great story. Thanks for joining us on Milk Street. Thank you. Yeah, take care. Thank you so much. That was Fawn Weaver from Lynchburg, Tennessee. You know, history is full of surprises, especially when it comes to U.S. presidents. Andrew Jackson taught his parrot how to curse. John Quincy Adams skinny dipped in the Potomac every morning. And his father, John Adams, invented the attack ad when running against Jefferson, saying, quote, the air will be rent with the cries of the distressed and soil will be soaked with blood. Lincoln was a celebrated wrestler, winning almost all of his 300 bouts. But it's not surprising that African-Americans often played a key role in the rise of American business. It's just surprising that we think it's surprising. 
Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Jen Ladd about this week's recipe. Jen, how are you? Good. How are you, Chris? You just got back from a vacation. You would say work vacation to Columbia, to Cartagena, and uh, you stumbled across a great recipe. It's really essentially pot roast the Colombian way. That's right, Chris. The dish is called Posta Negra, which translates to black beef in Spanish. I had it in a hip restaurant in the neighborhood of Getsemane in Cartagena, but this is really a traditional recipe. In Colombia, they marinate the beef overnight in spices. At Milk Street, we wanted to cut down on the cook time, so we go straight to braising, and that made a recipe that comes together in about four hours. So this is a like a Dutch oven, a pot, four or five pound, what, chuck roast, I guess, and some liquid and spices, and you throw in the oven and walk away and come back? That's right. What makes Posta Negra very different from your typical pot roast is the ingredient bill. It's a lot like mulled wine. There's cinnamon sticks, whole cloves, allspice, and brown sugar. In Colombia, they'd use panela sugar, which is unrefined brown sugar that comes in these rock-hard cones or blocks that you shave like Parmesan cheese. Here, we use brown sugar. I've actually tried those cones because they used to have them in the 19th century. That's when I was born. Uh, But you can still buy them in certain shops. It is a lot of work to shave those little cones of sugar. But they have a lot of flavor, right? I mean, there's a lot more flavor in that kind of sugar. They do. They have more molasses-y flavor. We actually kind of deepen the sweetness of our Posta Negra by using prunes, which kind of match that caramel-like sweetness of panela. But they also have a lot of fiber. So as they cook, they break down and add body to the sauce. So you're done with it. You slice the quote-unquote pot roast, the Posta Negra. You serve it with sauce. Is this served with like boiled potatoes like we would do here or something else? So in Colombia, I had it with yucca fritters and these plantains that have been caramelized in this red vanilla soda that's really typical of Cartagena called Cola Roman. But here at Milk Street, we add it with mashed potatoes and a pico de gallo. Thank you, Jen. You now have improved my view of pie roast. I love pie roast, but this sounds like it has a lot more flavor to it. And uh, via Cartagena, Colombia. Thank you. Thank you. You can get our recipe for Posta Negra at MilkStreetRadio.com. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host Sarah Moulton after the break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, 
and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to take some calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready? I think it's time to do this. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? This is Linda Zanuck from Ocala, Florida. So how can we help you? With all the salts on the market, <laughs> I have about six different salts in my cabinet. And I know you talk about kosher salt, and I've read where kosher salt and sea salt are considered the same, at least in some areas. How do you choose what to use? It's a good question. Yeah. Also, the coarseness. When you're measuring, I don't know, you know, if it calls for a teaspoon of salt. Right. Is that coarse salt? Is that no, it's an excellent, salt? it's an excellent question. For equivalence, the teaspoon of table salt is equal to two teaspoons of diamond, uh, diamond crystal, crystal kosher salt and about, about 1.2 1. teaspoons of Morton's kosher salt. So it's actually by brand. The reason that diamond crystals so much more is the crystals are larger, which means there's less weight per teaspoon. So it, it, just buy diamond crystal for your kosher salt, and it's two to one when you see a measurement for table salt. I, I don't use fine salt anymore at all. I use nothing but kosher salt because I have a salt box next to the stove 
I can pick the salt up in my hands. And so you can sprinkle it on food just before you serve it, for example. So it's easy to work with with your hands. My kitchen says, and has always said, and Sarah's going to say, that a fine salt is used in baking because it's better to evenly salt a cake or a muffin or something. Well, or it dissolves better, I, I don't. Thought. I have stopped using fine salt 20 years ago. I don't think that's true, but other people think it's true. So that's okay. And finally, there's one other kind of salt, a really like a Malden sea salt that's really crunchy. So uh-huh. if you're serving a steak or something and you just want a little salt on top and you want... Like a crunchy, a, salty, a crunchy, crouton. you know, hit, kosher salt won't do it. So it's really about the size and shape of the crystal. It's not about the flavor of the salt so Although much. some people say that sea salts have some minerality to them and, you know, depending gray on where sea it's salt, from. gray sea salt, French gray sea salt will have a little extra flavor. But that's only if you sprinkle it on food at the end. Once you put salt into a dish, it's not going to matter in terms of flavor. So, so what do you use? Do you just use table salt now? Well, no. I use table salt, but I had some friends who brought me back some sea salt from France. Oh, that's nice stuff, yeah. though. One is called the finishing salt. Yes. Yeah. So if you're going to use the finishing salt at the end, do you still put salt in as you're preparing the... No, a finishing salt is just something that has big grains that's going to be put on the food just before you serve it. But the question is, let's okay. say where it's used in, is in something like in French, these soups, you know, with chicken or, you know, braised beef, and then they'll throw it on on top. They still would have seasoned the yes. broth. This is just like a little salty hit right. on top at the end, like a little okay. crunchy, salty crouton. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Okay. All right. I love both your shows. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Take, Take care. care, Linda. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, this is Stephen from Salt Lake City, Utah. How can we help you? I had a question. I love garlic. I especially love roasted garlic. And I've read that there's a danger of infection from Clostridium botulinum and that you shouldn't store roasted garlic in oil. And I was wondering if there's a good way to prepare it to freeze it so that I could have bulk to use as I needed. Yeah, I've heard the same thing about storing garlic in oil. In an anaerobic environment, yeah. botulism can happen, right. yes. Botulism, that sounds like a T-shirt. Botulism can happen. <laughs> a, a note, a message from the FDA. You're right. Um, how about just freeze it, right? What I would do is, yeah, roast it in bulk and then puree it or just mash it and put it in ice cube trays, right. knowing that you'll probably never use those ice cube trays for anything else. That's what I would do. I think it, it would freeze perfectly. Right. Okay. The other thing you can do, I love is take a whole head of garlic, cut off the top quarter, just remove any loose paper on the outside, and throw that into a stew or a soup. And when the stew or soup is done, take it out, squeeze it with tongs, and that rich, creamy garlic, which does not have a strong flavor, it's just very mellow, Right. just squish that back into the liquid. We'll sort of thicken it up, too. It's terrific. Yeah. It's my favorite way to use garlic. But he wants to stockpile the stuff. So I think, yeah, yeah go ahead, make it in bulk, you know, just mash it, put it in ice cube trays, and you're good yeah. to go. Okay. That really helps out. Okay, Stephen. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Goodbye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Give us a call at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or you can send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, this is Fiddler from Atlanta. Hi, Fiddler. How are you? Wait, 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 wait. That's the best name. (laughs) Thank you. Is that your given name or is that your... I gave it to myself. I'm actually 
known in Atlanta as the uh, Beltline Fiddler because I practiced my violin on the Atlanta Beltline. Really? What kind of fiddling? Is this old country music, old-timey music, or is this something else? Yeah, old-timey and ragtime. Very nice. Good for you. That's great. So uh, we have great farmer's markets in Atlanta, organic stuff, and I buy these organic pecans, and I make my own pecan milk, and it's so rich and creamy, and I do the same with walnuts that you it's so tempting to pour it in your coffee in the morning. But what I notice is that it curdles. You know, it's a little disappointing. I mean, if I put cacao powder in, it's wonderful and it makes, like, amazing hot chocolate. But why does it curdle when I pour it into hot coffee? Well, I mean, there are three things going on. Your nut milk or whatever you're using, you make, it's got fat, it's got protein, it's got water, and there's an emulsion the protein helps keep the fat suspended in the water. And when you get curdling, the fat starts to glob up together and it's no longer suspended. And coffee's somewhat acidic. And a heavy cream, for example, doesn't tend to do that. But very often in the nut milk, this will happen because it's a different ratio of fat and protein. The only way to get around that, I think is probably to use an emulsifier of some kind, right, Sarah? Yeah, but I wouldn't know what that is. For coffee. Well, you know what? Yesterday I did an experiment. I had walnut milk and I made, mixed it with cacao, and then I had the coffee with heavy cream in it. And I decided at the end I would mix them and to see if it curdled, and it did not curdle. Right. That's because you had the cream in there. That's because of the cream. So I wonder if maybe the calcium from the cream is like doing something, or no? I think it's because the ratio of fat to protein is different. For example, if you add milk to a hot soup, it might very well curdle, but heavy cream won't. You can boil heavy cream yeah. and it won't curdle. It's because the, the fat e- Even is the high. organic, you know, and uh, heavy cream has such a high butterfat content, it does not separate. So I think the cream was uh, a good idea. Oh, well, that may be the answer. It certainly... Yes. I bet it tasted delicious. good. You, you yeah. could, I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but you could make a slurry. I mean, you could take a tiny bit of cornstarch mix it with some of the nut milk, and then mix that in to the rest of the nut milk. Yeah. And so you have a little bit of an emulsifier there, stabilizer. Interesting idea. I mean, you just keep it in the fridge. You have your coffee milk that's stabilized already with a little cornstarch. That might work. All right. Well, that's good. Thanks for calling. Well, yes, thank, thank you. you. It's good to talk to you. Enjoy the podcast. Thank, thank you so you. much. Ciao, ciao. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Mill Street Basic is how to deal with the problem of soaking beans overnight. You know, we prefer the flavor and texture of dried beans that are cooked from scratch, and of course that means overnight soaking. But it can be hard to remember to soak them overnight on a Tuesday night when you have to get dinner on the table in 45 minutes. So here's a trick we learned from cookbook author Joan Nathan. Simply soak dried beans overnight and then freeze them, and you can use them whenever you want. The beans can go directly from the freezer to a pot of water or soup to simmer until tender. Dr. Aaron Carroll is professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. Dr. Aaron Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. You've been on a roll lately. I can drink uh, red wine. I can drink coffee. I can eat raw (laughs) cookie dough. Uh, My life has improved significantly. Uh, What do you have for me this week? Yeah, I thought we'd actually talk about coconut oil and sort of our 
our thoughts on picking fads to replace simple things like butter and how we keep choosing one or the next, and we always seem to just keep coming back to the basics over and over again. <laughs> so coconut oil's okay or not? So it, the thing was, you know, coconut oil went away in the 90s when everybody got panicked about saturated fat. Because just like butter, it is full of saturated fat. But in the last few years, as people have begun to, to, to be, think maybe saturated fat wasn't as bad as we thought it was, or maybe questioning some of the research, coconut oil started to take off because it's full of medium-chain triglycerides. So when you have different types of fats, even saturated fats, the length of the, the fatty acids plays some role in how those are absorbed by the body and, and how they are, are, are treated once they go in. And coconut oil has been around and accepted by some for a while because it is full of these medium chain triglycerides, which means it gets absorbed a bit more easily and doesn't have to do as much passing through things like the liver. It also started to take off because there were a couple very small studies, almost entirely in animals, that started to question whether we absorbed it differently because of that, that it might not make you as fat, that it might play differently in terms of raising your cholesterol. And of course, you get a few small studies, you get a couple of, of uh, celebrities behind it, and the next thing you knew, coconut oil was flying off the shelves. Just a couple of years ago, in like 2014, you know, I think sales of coconut oil were like $170 million a year. And just one year later, it had jumped all the way to $230 million a year. And this was sort of the fad food of the paleo set, that, that this was now a perfect fat that we could all have and it would be great. But it's crashed and it's burned. And actually sales are now back down in 2017 to, to 160 million, which is lower than it was in 2014. And now once again, we've sort of moved on to the next fad butter substitute. But over and over again through history, as we keep trying to pick these substitutes, we keep blowing it. And it's, it's sort of mind boggling how we never seem to learn our lesson and just go back to the basics. Well, I've said this many times. One always wonders whether this is simply a function of marketing. You know, the Coconut Oil Institute, or whatever you call mm -hmm. it, yeah. uh, you know, had some studies done and then did some marketing. Uh, and now we're on to what, avocado oil, pumpkin seed oil, you know, whatever the next ghee. thing is, right? And ghee is the next big one, too, because, ghee. you know, it's now it's, it's clean and everything else. And, I mean, you're correct that avocado oil and things like that as well. I, I'm often fascinated by, you know, for me, this all started out with, with margarine um, right. because for for almost 100 years, there were this huge wars about whether we should have margarine or we should have butter, um, with the idea that people were just assuming that that vegetable oil or oils from vegetables were just going to be, by definition, better for us than oils from animals. But, but the problem was that vegetable oils were all liquids at room temperature. And the only way to make it solid so that we could use it as margarine was to hydrogenate it and basically turn it into what we now call a trans fat. And now we know Trans fat were the worst things we ever could have done, that they are significantly more risky than even saturated fat, so much so that by this summer, I think the FDA is going to finish up and completely ban them, uh, added trans fats from uh, being used in any foods produced or sold in the United States. But for decades, even in my house, I remember this growing up, uh, margarine was the spread of choice because everybody was convinced that this vegetable oil had to be safer than butter or the animal oil. But it turned out that was completely worse. And of course, today, margarine is somewhat back, but they've eliminated the trans fat. And now what they do is it's a buttery spread, and they're, they're basically just using other things uh, to try to make it solidified. But again, good evidence that again and again, we keep trying to fix something that I'm not sure is broken. Uh, and, and butter is the only thing that seems, seems to stick around over time. You know, I'm interested in the margarine story, because I still know people who believe margarine's healthier 
even the old style mm. margins healthier than butter. Once that idea is implanted through marketing or however it's done, uh, it's hard to reverse it and get people to say, you know, oh, butter's healthier than margarine. Is that because of the power of repeated suggestion, or is that because somehow butter just has such a horrible, for some strange reason, uh, reputation? I think it's all of the above. I'd also add in that it's it's the fault of experts as well. I think if you go back probably to the 70s and 80s, you could find plenty of national organizations, probably with many nutrition experts, pushing the idea that margarine was better than butter, pushing that low fat was the way to go, and that you know using these fats was going to be better than the hard, saturated fats that we would otherwise be eating. Um, but they were wrong. We'd extrapolate what we'd see from small studies in animals and then say this must be true writ large. And of course, coconut oil, you know, bringing it back to that is another great example. Couple small studies, couple animal studies, couple, you know, groups of people, you get some experts on board, then everybody's convinced this is the next big thing that's going to save us. I think just the time period uh, between fads is now shortening, whether that's due to <laughs> social media or the media at large. We just keep bouncing more quickly than we used to. Yeah, margarine had a whole century and coconut oil had three yeah. years. Yeah. So, That's right. so, so your takeaway here is just stay away from the processed stuff, and if you just have the natural stuff, you're probably in good shape? Yeah, I mean, it's like no one should be eating butter by the gallon, but if you're going to use these things for their intended purpose, which is usually in small amounts for good cooking or to season otherwise healthy food, it doesn't matter which of these things you're using. None of them should be the staple of your diet, and none of them, if used in moderation, is going to be a problem. But I would say that evidence seems to prove to us that the natural, simple stuff is, is not ever caused the problems that, that some of the, the more manufactured or lab-based stuff seems to bring on. So I remember from the 60s, a, a particular form of comic book. So you, you're now Mr. Natural for the 21st century. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I never would have thought that that would be my role, but I seem to be falling more and more into it. Dr. Aaron Carroll, thank you so much. Coconut oil, well, it went up and now it went down. Thank you. Thank you. In my interview with Wyatt Williams, he noted, quote, most writers I know hate the books they love. It's true that we obsess over the unattainable, and yet, for all of our shortcomings, we still love what we cannot do ourselves. And maybe that's the definition of great art. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our TV show, and order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Producer, Tristan Cimini. Associate producer, Carly Helmetog. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugar. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange. Mm-hmm.